So I'm going to just start. Let's just pray and give this night to God. And it's my hope that God would really speak to you tonight. I definitely feel very scatterbrained. I think it has something to do with being a first-time dad three months in. At least it's an excuse. I spent almost 15 minutes looking for my car at Walmart a couple weeks ago. (laughs) My car was parked here, and the very next spot was a family friend. And as I'm looking for the car, she's waving. So I see her, and I'm moving back, and I walk right alongside my car, but my head is turned at her car. So then I walk by, and I keep looking through the parking lot. And I finally call my wife to tell her that somebody stole our car. (laughs) And right as I'm calling Aaron, I look up, and the same family friend's waving at me again, like 10 minutes later, wondering what in the world I'm doing. And then I realize our car was right next to hers. It was kind of embarrassing. So let's pray. Okay, God, I just give you this night, and we just thank you so much for this opportunity to come and hang out and have fun, God. And I pray that you'd keep us all safe this weekend, that nobody get injured, that nobody get hurt. And God, I pray that we'd learn a ton, that we'd grow a ton, and pray that you just be here in a tangibly evident way, God, as we talk, as we hang out, as we do fun things together, God, that you would just saturate all of it, that each one of us would be able to walk away from here more than man that you want us to be, influencing our cities for the exact reason that you put us there in the first place, God. I pray for all the pastors here tonight, that you would bless them in their ministries. I pray that you give them the keys to their cities, God, that they would be able to, to know exactly what works and what doesn't work in their cities, God, that they would be able to be full of your wisdom about reaching their cities for you. And God, we just pray for every man here, that you'd restore us from the inside out, and that you'd refresh us, that you'd recharge us, God, and we just give this time to you. In your name, we pray. Amen. Stalin. What comes to mind when you think of Stalin? He killed 20 million people. That's kind of a, an average estimate. Some people say he killed as many as 100 million. Ted Bundy confessed to killing over 30 women after raping them. Nobody knows how many he really killed. Ahmadinejad. Many of you guys love seeing that guy on the news. Lucis Cannon in the Middle East with the potential to kill millions. They have enough nuclear material to make one bomb right now, supposedly, or they're really close to that amount. They get that, watch out. Pretty psychotic. <laughs> and when you hear these names, there's a common theme. Evil. Osama bin Laden, the father of modern terrorism. We all know that name. Enron, corporate deception that costs retirement portfolios over $60 billion and cost almost 6,000 people their jobs. We've seen a lot more just like that this year. Kim Jong-il, nuclear-powered dictator that's put most of the world in fear. Hitler killed 6 million in the Holocaust and had designs on many more. John Cooey, you guys remember this name? John Cooey was a convicted sex offender that kidnapped, raped, and murdered 9-year-old Jessica Lunsford in 2005. I remember hearing that story and just thinking, if there's anything more evil than that guy, I don't know what it is. This beautiful young girl, and he kidnapped her, raped her, murdered her. I got so mad, I remember, when I heard that story. It made me burst. And now having a baby girl, it's even crazier. I can't even read stories like that anymore without just about losing my mind. And when I think about that, it's easy to start thinking, how could somebody be that evil, right? How could anyone be that terrible? And the thought occurred to me, the same thought I had too sometimes when maybe not in such a drastic level, but I get cut off in traffic and I think, what a complete moron that guy was, you know? How could he be so stupid? It's easy to see when other people are wrong and it's easy to forget who I am and why I am this way. So I wanted to ask you, as you think of all those different people, why are you who you are and why are you different than all those people I just described?
If you have a pen, I would like you to write out some answers here. I'd never really thought through this this way until just recently. And it kind of made a profound impact on me as I contemplated it. You guys, some of these questions might open up an old wound or something in you that still hurts. So bear with me. In Romans 7.18, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. So as I look around at you guys, I have a tremendous amount of respect for all you guys in this room. A lot of you men, as, as I was in college, influenced my life dramatically. I think of so many of you guys, Steve and Gordy and Larry and all you guys that were contributing to my growth, not, not to forget Kyle and Russ who were on staff at that time as I was a student. I look around this room. There are a lot of great men in this room, guys that I admire and respect. But I know that it isn't because of you. Not at all. Because I know that just like there's nothing good in me, there's nothing good naturally in any of you. The same people that did all those crazy things that we described, I think each one of us are capable of that. And I want to think this through because I think it really helps us understand our identity in Christ if we know where we could be if it weren't for Him. So who would you be if you hadn't received the blessings that God has blessed you with? Who would you be, guys, if you never had an opportunity to know Christ, ever? Who would you be if you'd never, ever, ever had a loving family? How many of you guys have a loving life at home? Raise your hand. I do. Every single year, I'm more convinced that I married the right woman. I thank God for that. If you just raise your hand saying you have a loving life at home, there are a lot of people in this world that don't. There are a lot of broken marriages. There are a lot of people that don't have that. How many of you guys have kids that you love? How many of you kids have parents that you love? I think in Durango alone, it's something like 80 kids right now need foster parents because they don't have a family that loves them. In Colorado right now, 700 kids need foster parents. Just having a dad and a mom that love you is a pretty big deal. It's something that not everybody has. How many of you have good physical and mental health? Everybody's raising their hand. I'm, I'm in tip-top shape. All of you guys are able to be here. There are some people that literally, they're just not strong enough to come up and do something like this. Thank God that we are. How many of you guys have had your needs met? How many of you have a house to live at? How many of you have a car, or even cars, multiple cars to drive? You know, one of my cars went out last week, and I had another car. Wow, what a blessing. I know people in India, pastors in India, that are begging God for a bicycle to be able to get from village to village. Because they preach every night of the week. And for me, it's an inconvenience when one car goes in the shop. How many of you have ever had answered prayer? Wow, all of us, right? What if you'd never had answered prayer? What if there'd never been a time in your life that you could think back and remember something that God did specifically in your life? Have you ever been miraculously rescued or had your life spared? Russ was sharing this with me. Times where he should have been dead. I think he said five or six times he should have been dead that he knows for sure in his life. I remember a time in Romania when my family first moved there. There was a tram on the tracks. You can't get off the tracks. And we were caught between a bus and this tram and trying to get around the bus. And we just barely snuck through. And I look back at that as one of those times where I could have easily been dead. You guys probably all have those. So where would you be if God had not spared your life, literally? You'd be dead. You wouldn't even be here tonight. Where would you be, guys? If God had not gotten your car past the numerous drunk drivers driving by you every night, what a hidden blessing that maybe I never even realized, but God's hand is there protecting me all along. Where would I be without that? Where would I be without Him? 
Where would you be without education and technology? Travel, communication. Where would you be if you couldn't call your wife tonight when you get done with this talk and talk to her? I got this cell phone here. I can call Romania. It's on speed dial. I can call Moldova. It's now on speed dial. We're going to be there next week. Where would you be, guys, without these capabilities that we have? Where would you be without the resources that God's given you? You guys, you have more time than anybody on this planet. Just because everything is so convenient. You go to one store, buy all your groceries, you're done, you go home. When my family lived in Romania, it would take two or three days to find everything you needed to eat for the week. And then you had to wash all your clothes by hand. And on top of that, you had a full-time ministry to do. So you got maybe two days of ministry after you did all the things you need to do just to survive. In America, I can finish all that in 45 minutes. Get home, pop the laundry in the washer, went to Walmart, got everything. You have more time than anybody on the planet. What about your nationality? Who would you be, guys, if you weren't born in the United States of America? Sometimes we can think of ourselves as underprivileged, but honestly, we're blessed just by virtue of being here. You can go anywhere in the world you want. I'm going next week to Romania, Moldova, and Turkey, and I don't need a visa for, for any of the three. For Turkey, you need a visa, but you get it when you show up. It's, you don't have to apply or anything like that. If I was from any other country, I'd need to go through huge processes and pay big amounts to get into any of those countries. Just by virtue of being American, you have freedoms that nobody else has. And what about what about your income? This is kind of touchy, so you don't have to raise your hand. But think of this through in your mind. How many of you adults make over 29000 a year? 65% of Americans make over 29000 a year. If you make over 29000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. It kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? I start looking at the news. Oh, my gosh, we're going to have an economic downturn, you know. Well, as bad as it could ever get, I think we're still doing a lot better than 3 billion people that make less than $2 a day. Is that insane? 3 billion people. I've been to around 30 countries. I've lived probably a third of my life outside the United States. And when I went to Nepal, I was just astounded by the level of poverty. I've never seen anything like it. We're blessed, guys. So who would you be without God's blessings in your life? Where would I be if it weren't for God's amazing blessings in my life? In John 1, it says, By His grace, we've all been given one blessing after another. Isn't it true? The resources that God's given you, they're His blessing. And they're, they're there for you to use for His kingdom, which is an exciting thing. God didn't put you here in America so that you could feel guilty about being here in America. right? He put you here as somebody equipped with resources unspeakable in most of the world so that we could further His kingdom. I'm going to use every resource I can to further his kingdom here. you know. Otherwise, he would have put me somewhere that didn't have resources. <laughs> okay, now I want to go to the next step. So, going on, who would you be if God had not saved you from what might have been? And this might be a little hard, so bear with me, guys. Family histories of so many things get passed on and passed on and passed on. Some Christians talk about the idea of a generational curse. I think, biblically, that's not 100% on track. But the idea is solid that there are generational sins that persist from generation to generation to generation. I don't think you're locked into it. That's, I guess, where I'm coming from. And here's the deal, guys. Drug and alcohol abuse, single-family homes, emotional, verbal, and physical abuse, sexual sin, these are all things that get passed on from generation to generation. If these things are in your family history, it's a blessing from God himself that they're not in your life. When I look at that, guys, pretty much in the last two generations on my two sides of my family, at least somewhere on those two sides, is everything in that list except single-family homes. 
And I look at it, and to me, it is amazing that God has put me in a place where those things aren't being passed on to the next generation. This stuff is in my family history, and I thank God that it gets to end with me. Some of you may have grown up with this. And all the statistics say, they say if you grew up in an alcoholic home, you're up to nine times as likely to become an alcoholic yourself. If you grew up in a home where drugs were abused, basically they say you will become a drug addict. There's almost no chance not to. But see, with Christ there is. It can end with us, guys. It doesn't have to go on. So I want you to look through that list and think through, what of that is in my family history? And if you don't feel comfortable writing it down, that is okay. You don't have to write that down right now. And as you think through that, also realize this. Those things, they're related to violent crime. They're related to emotional, developmental, and behavioral issues, to relational issues, physical and mental health problems, difficulties with reasoning, speaking, and learning, and even lower IQs. So you start looking at what happens when you grow up in that setting, and not only do a lot of those things go on to your kids in the future, but you really lose a lot. Or you can. And see, that's what I'm telling you guys is you are who you are because of what God's done in your life. It ain't an accident. I want you to notice I am who I am because of him. It's not just like I'm, I just happen to be a really good guy. Sometimes when, when I hear these terrible stories in Durango about some hoodlum stealing something, I always think, oh, how could he do that? I would never do something like that. And I fail to remember what I've been given and what God's done in my life. So think that through, guys. And I want to make a note here. If you did grow up in these types of settings, I don't know how you process that yet, but there might need to be some forgiveness and some healing that need to happen. And I would encourage you, if you came with a pastor this weekend, when you get home, get him one-on-one and talk to him about this stuff and, and really process this stuff because there can be total healing. You don't need to hold this inside forever. And second of all, this generational sin can end with you. Your kids don't have to grow up in that kind of setting. And your kids can experience the freedom and the love that God intended for every one of us to be parented with. I have a friend that had terrible abuse and all sorts of stuff growing up, and he wanted to change his family name, his last name. And his pastor told him, I'm challenging you. You can do whatever you want, but I'm challenging you. Don't change your name, but change what that name stands for with your family. You be the one that makes that name what it is supposed to be. And he took that challenge, and he's married. He got married last year. He's in seminary right now, preparing to go into full-time ministry as a Christian counselor so that he can help people that had similar backgrounds. God can end that with you, and he can start a legacy that honors him with you and with your wife and with your kids. So get with your pastor and talk about those things if you need healing in any of those areas. Okay, so who would you be without the blessings that God's given you? Who would you be if God had not protected you from so much that has happened to you? And who would you be if God had not saved you from what you were and even are? We each have natural weaknesses, insecurities, things that we're not good at, and we also have sinful tendencies. Who would I be if God had not saved me from those things and begun a work in me to make me more like himself? Right? It's easy to think I'm pretty good right now. But I mean, how was I 10 years ago or 20 years ago? And for you older guys, 30, 40 years ago, I, I, I'm not there yet. But honestly, where would you be if God had not saved you from yourself? Okay, now take all those things. That's a lot that we talked about. Take all that, guys, and multiply that by time. Because the sin nature just gets worse over time, right? 
It doesn't get any better. I'm sure all you guys know that the older you get, the stronger the sinful nature gets. It doesn't mean that it has any control over you. We as Christians do not have to live in bondage to it at all. But we don't just naturally get better over time. We get worse over time. So take all that stuff, multiply it over time, and I think that might give you a little bit of a picture of where you might literally be if it wasn't for what Christ has done in your life. And just let that sink in for a minute. You know, I think about it. I could be living on the streets. I could be abusing drugs and alcohol. I could be beating my wife. I could be into all sorts of violent crime. Compared to most of America, I'm doing pretty good. It's only by God's grace. It ain't because I'm special. It isn't because I did something better than somebody. It's because God chose to show his grace to me and to make me more and more like himself. And I hope you guys get that feeling that you are who you are because of Christ. And because of him alone, it is not because of me. I guess my only aspect is choosing daily to let him work in me, right? Choosing daily to let him do what he wants to do. Again, remember Romans 7.18, I knew that nothing good dwells in me. And I think when Paul said that, he understood this stuff that we just talked about. Aside from God, there's nothing there. Repeating mistakes can be a life trap. I want to encourage you guys that if you've gotten that, thank God for second, third, and 57th chances. Because His grace is sufficient. And thank Him for being patient with us. Second Peter 3.9 And making us more and more into people that reflect His character to a world that desperately needs to see it. And if you haven't gotten out of some of these issues and some of these cycles, I want to encourage you that total victory is possible. God did not ever design the Christian life to be lived in bondage. When Paul talks about falling into sin, it's not like, I fall into sin every day. Okay? If you sin then confess that sin. We will sin in the future, but I don't expect that and then just live a life of sin and go, oh yeah, but everybody sins. God wants us to have victory. That's possible. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Is that not an awesome promise? You were just like this stuff that I mentioned. I was just like this stuff. And if I wasn't just like it, I easily could have been. But He washed me, and He made me new. He made me a new creation, he says. He's taken what was broken and he made it whole. And he made it something beautiful. That's what we could be. So who are you now? I want to shift a little bit and talk about our identity as a Christian. The Bible talks clearly about us being a spirit, a soul, and a body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Get this. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Joints and marrow being your physical body. So again, he's talking about your soul, your spirit, and your physical body. Does that make sense, guys? So you have a soul, a spirit, and a body. We like to put it this way. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. That's a good way to write it down. And I'm going somewhere with this. This will make a lot of sense. I think if you grasp these three things, it will give you vision for victory in your life. I really think so. Because I think it will help you to see who God's designed you to be and who you really already are. Now it's just learning to walk in what He's already made me. So you are a spirit, you have a soul, you live in a body. Okay, now here, here it is, guys. The Greek word for body is soma, and in Hebrew it was basar. And it referred to the material part of you, your flesh and bones. It's just this stuff that's going to die and rot away. Okay? So this is not really you. Nate, is your ear really you? 
If I chop that ear off, are you still mate? Not that I'm going to do that. Your physical body, you can lose a part of it, and it's gone, but you're still you. And honestly, guys, from a biological perspective, other than your brain, your body is renewing itself constantly. The cells that you have in your hands and your fingernails and all this weren't there three years ago. Okay, You're new, but you're still the same person. So you are not your body, and your body isn't you. So there's something greater than your body that gets to control your body. Your body is going to die, and you're going to get a new one. 1 Corinthians 15, 44. You're going to get a new spiritual body. We don't know what that's going to look like, but it's going to be a lot better than what we have here. Jordan takes pretty good care of his body. right? Where's Jordan? He wouldn't eat any of my potato chips driving up here tonight. But I accidentally grabbed fat-free string cheese, which was a bummer, so we had kind of a healthy snack on the way up. I guess that was actually dinner. But anyway, your body is going to die. You're going to get a new one. There's no sense trying to fix this one. Well, keep it healthy, but eventually you're going to lose it. Your body allows you to live on earth. James 2.26, the body without the spirit is dead. Does that make sense? So your body allows you to live here on this earth. But once your spirit's gone, your body's dead. It's not there. Your body is not the real you. Your body is to be controlled by the real you. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27? He said, I beat my body into submission. So I make my body do what I want it to do. My body doesn't tell me what to do. I tell it what to do. Is that good? So I control my body. It doesn't control me. So your body is going to die. You're going to get a new one. That's that. Your soul, the psyche, or the nephesh in Hebrew, is your mind, your thought life, your intellect, your emotions, your self-image, how you view yourself, your feelings, your attitudes, your appetites, your personality. Got that? Is that really you? It's a big part of you, right? But does your image change throughout your life? Did you always think of yourself as a soccer player? Mike, did you always think of yourself as a football player? Dimitri, you're on the football team too, right? When did you first start liking football? Seven. Seven. Okay. So before seven, were you still Dimitri? Yeah, right? Okay. What about your thoughts, guys? Don't those change a little bit? Don't you have power to change those? Does anybody, I mean, does anybody just say that thought's going through your head and you have no power to stop it? You have power to control your thoughts. You have the ability to control it. So that's not you. You get to control it. Does that make sense? You get to control what you think about. You get to control how you view yourself. When I was a college student, my identity was wrapped up in my self-image as a snowboarder. Specifically, I was sponsored, and I wanted everyone to know about it. Okay? (laughs) It's a big pride issue, too. That was like how I viewed myself. That was my image. And finally, it hit me. I need Christ to be my identity, not snowboarding. That was my self-image. That's changed. Now I see snowboarding as a fun thing to do. If I can, it's not who I am. It's something I do. So, your soul is all this stuff. Now get this. The soul is the sum of your mind, your thought life, intellect, emotions, feelings, attitudes, appetites, personality. Right? It won't die. You won't receive a new one. It must be transformed. So the soul you have now, you get for all of eternity. But it's not perfect. It's being transformed daily into Christ's character. Does that make sense? That's why there's such an emphasis in Scripture on what I think about. 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought, make it captive and obedient to Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.1, set your minds on things above. Philippians 4.8-9, think on all these things. Hebrews 3.1, set your thoughts on Jesus. See, I get to control what I think about. And I get to change how I think. Romans 12.1, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember that? So you guys see my mind is being changed over time to be more and more like Christ. So too are my emotions, what I feel. 
what I desire. Paul, even in Philippians 1, evaluates his own desires about the Philippians. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. Isn't that interesting? So Paul's not just going, I feel this way, so that's the way it goes. Paul's saying, I feel this affection for the Philippians, who I've, I've mentored and I've discipled and I've trained and all this stuff. But he says, is it right to feel that way? Isn't that interesting? He's evaluating his own feelings to see if they're in line with God's will. And then he came to the conclusion, yes, it is right for me to feel this way about you. So he was making sure that his soul, his mind, his feelings, all these things were in line with God and with what God wanted. Does that make sense? Your soul is not the real you. In Luke 21, 19, Jesus said something. He said, in patience, possess your souls. It's kind of peculiar, right? Or control your souls. And it takes patience, right? How many of you guys just yesterday could totally have control over every thought? And it would never be an issue. Or over every feeling. Those things take time. They take patience to learn how to control them. But see, that's my soul that is being transformed over the course of my life to be more and more like Jesus. The spirit in the Greek, pneuma, in the Hebrew, ruah, meant the dynamic force which constitutes a person. It is the higher part of the immaterial being. It's the real you. Now get this, guys. This is kind of important. I think that you might have an epiphany if this has never crossed your mind yet. Malcolm, I know we've talked about this before. Your spirit was dead before knowing Jesus. In Ephesians 2, it says, You were dead in your trespasses, but he made you alive in Christ Jesus. Okay, before you came to Christ, did you feel things? Before you came to Christ, did you have emotions? Probably out of control emotions, right? Before you came to Christ, could you think? Before you came to Christ, did you have a self-image? Before you came to Christ, did you have a body? Yes. Okay? All that stuff was very much alive when he says that you were dead, but he made you alive. So when he said he made you alive, what got made alive? It was a spirit that God created to live in perfect unity and harmony with him. But that spirit was dead because of sin. That's where Romans 6 says it was separated from God, or where sin causes separation and death. So anyway, that spirit was dead before knowing Jesus, but he made it alive, guys. He made it alive. That's your identity, now, when Christ came into your life, and he made your spirit alive, bless you, Jerry. When Christ came into your life, and he made your spirit alive, he did something else to you guys. He made your spirit perfect. This is kind of profound. In Hebrews 12, 23, it talks about the spirits of just men made perfect. And in Hebrews 10, 14, he says he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified by one sacrifice. Perfected forever by one sacrifice. Those who are still in this process of becoming more and more like Him, of being sanctified. Does that make sense? So you're still in this process, guys, but your spirit has been perfected forever already with Christ. Now, this is why the identity issue gets crazy. When you're struggling in your walk with God, don't you start to think, man, I've lost it. You start to identify with your sin. My sin is me. That thought that I just thought, that's me. That thing that I just did, that's me, don't we? We start to think that we are those things. And I think for us, it's important, guys, to realize God made me a spiritual being. There's a great quote. We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. Okay, I think that was Bob Marley. I'm not sure. But uh, he got it right. Quoting <laughs> Bob Marley at the men's retreat. But anyway, guys, it's so true. And see, that's what's so important is when I realize God has made me perfect in His image, He sees me as perfect through Christ, even with all the junk that I'm walking through, when I start to identify with that, that's who I am. I'm not this sin. 
I'm who God made me to be. Does that make sense, guys? When we start to identify with who God says we are and what God says is true, that's when we start to get victory over it. Because we're not taking ownership in that anymore. We're realizing, this isn't really me. This is not me. And God's already made me somebody that's strong enough to beat that. Right? I'm more than a conqueror, Romans 8.37. Not because I'm good at it. You remember what we're like. I'm more than a conqueror because of Him. And because of who He's made me. By His own grace, not because of me. So because of Him, you're first and foremost a Christian. You're chosen by Him. You're set apart for a purpose. Gosh, you're called to be His ambassador. You're His child. You're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. A new creation. You guys, it doesn't end. Anyone who's in Christ, He is a new creation. Not was for a day. And then He started sinning again, so then He got off track. No, you are a new creation if you're in Christ because He's perfected your spirit forever. Now this other stuff, your body, you kind of just forget about. Do your best to make it last as long as possible because I don't know about you, but I'm not in a hurry to leave this body. And your soul, guys, this is where we submit to Him transforming us constantly. 2 Corinthians 3.18, He's transforming me more and more into His character by His Holy Spirit. And that's something that doesn't happen overnight. That's why we have to be patient with ourselves. But I want you to know that's not who you are. You are who God made you. You are who God says you are. You aren't that failure. You're not that sin. You're not that thought. You guys got that? Is that good? I think if we can grasp this, it helps us think the way God thinks. I think a lot of Christians don't understand God, so they infer that God is not understandable. So then when they see Christians doing things that aren't understandable, they think that must be spiritual because God's not understandable. Does that make sense? And so you get into this cycle where, where we almost think thinking is bad. Right? If somebody says, you need to grow closer to God by thinking more, you'd think, oh, that's not very spiritual. But yet, God made us and put his mind in us. First Corinthians 2. So I think if we can get a grasp in our mind of who God's made us to be, that's important. Okay, remember, you are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. The spirit is the real you. Now, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? And what Jesus is saying here is, Every day we have this decision to die to the old self, the old name, and to live the man that he created me to be in him. There's this struggle. Look at Galatians 5. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. They both describe this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And the spirit can win. In Romans 4, 18 through 22, these are just snippets of that passage. It says about Abraham, against all hope, in hope he believed. Without weakening in his faith, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He was strengthened in faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Is that the Abraham you read about in Genesis? That's not who I read about, right? And I was reading in Romans 4 in 2002, and this shocked me. What? It says, against all hope, in hope he believed. No, he didn't. If you read Genesis 12 through 18, I think it's about 10 different times that Abraham specifically doubts God and even laughs at God in his face because God tells him he's going to have a child. And then his wife also laughs at God. Okay, and that's where she gets her name when God changes it. So neither of them, and especially not Abraham, is really believing God at all. But here, against all hope, in hope he believed, without weakening in his faith. Did Abraham weaken in his faith? He absolutely did. He fathered an illegitimate child with his slave girl because he didn't believe God could fulfill his promise to him. I would say that's weakening in his faith. 
Okay, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Yes, he did. He was strengthened in faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded. I don't think he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. I read this, and I was shocked. It was like, I've studied every contradiction in the Bible and found a million good answers for all of it, all the apologetics, all that stuff. And I saw this, and I was just like, I was just devastated for like two weeks. And my dad knows the Bible probably better than anybody I've ever met in my life. So we were at Tequila's on Main Street in Durango, the restaurant, and I brought this up with my dad. And right as I'm saying it, it hits me. You guys remember Romans 4, 17? That's why all the pastors are like, Nate, you got to read in context. Remember what Romans 4, 17 says? It says, God is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And then immediately in 18, he starts describing Abraham. He calls things that are not as though they were. This is shocking to me. Abraham did consciously put his faith and belief in God. He did that, guys. And from that point forward, God said, that's how I choose to see you, Abraham. I'm not choosing to look at your weaknesses. I'm choosing to look at you through the sacrifice that would be made at Calvary, through Jesus. And this is so profound, guys. Remember the context of 4.17. And get this, because Abraham put his faith in God. That's in Genesis 15.6. God saw him as righteous. Romans 4.22. It says that God saw him as righteous because he put his faith in him. Have you done that? That's what I want to ask. You made that decision to put your trust in Christ? Because if you have, that's how God chooses to see you too. doesn't mean that he's ignorant about your weaknesses. He's working through those with you. That's why he put his Holy Spirit in your life. But at the same time, he chooses to see you opposite of your weaknesses. He chooses to define you as opposite of your weaknesses. Is that not cool? Abraham chose many times to doubt God. And God said, you know what? I choose to say you believe and that you weren't weakened in your faith. Now get this. It gets so good. This is so, so interesting. God looked directly at Abraham's unbelief and called him leaving. God did the same thing, guys, with King David. King David committed adultery and murder. 2 Samuel 11. This is hard. Adultery and murder. What, what did God call David in Acts 13, 22? A man after his own heart. Look at Peter. This blows my mind. Peter contradicted Christ three times in Mark 18, was idolatrous during the transfiguration. Remember that? Luke 9. And despite vowing to lay down his life for Christ, he denied him three times in John 18. Pretty fickle, right? Pretty fickle. I would not look at Peter and think, that's the guy I want on my leadership team. Right? He wouldn't make a team. <laughs> he would be somewhere in the back. You know what Jesus calls Peter? He calls him a rock. Is that profound? Jesus looks at Peter, sees his weakness, he says, you're a rock because of me. Not because of him. Not because Peter had anything. Peter was just like every one of us in this room. Nothing to offer, guys. And then God did with Peter what he's done with every one of us. Just look at, look at the difference between that and John 18. Fast forward to the second chapter of Acts and see the difference in Peter's life. It's only if God had not begun to work something amazing in Peter where he could stand up in front of thousands and share boldly without fearing death. So the bottom line, when you are faithless, he remains faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, God looks at your weaknesses, guys, and he chooses to see the opposite, just like he did with Abraham, David, and Peter. And he calls those things which are not yet true about you as though they were even right now. But that's the thing, because he's looking at the spirit that he's perfected. Through Jesus, guys, this is what we have in Christ. That's our identity. And see, I can associate with that identity I am in Christ. And that's what Paul said in Philippians 3, 7. That's it. As long as I'm found in him, there's nothing else that matters. There's nothing else that matters. 
Because if I'm not found in him, I don't have anything to offer, and I'm dead. So who am I, and why am I who I am? 2 Corinthians 5.17 If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You are who you are because of him, and you're becoming who he wants you to be because of him also. That's the process that we're in. You are God's son. You're saved by grace. It's not by any merit of your own. And you're created in him to serve him daily. And this is how I want to kind of close, and this is going to lead into what Russ says tomorrow, is we've each been created for a purpose. Jeremiah 29, 11, Ephesians 2, 10. Each one of you guys here was created for a purpose that nobody else could fulfill. In Acts 17, 26, it says he decided the times and places where you should live. It's not an accident that you're in Grand Junction or Bayfield or in Durango. Why are we in Durango? It's not an accident. He's put you where you are to fulfill a purpose that he created you for. Now, the only time you fully realize your identity is by fulfilling your purpose. Does that make sense? Would a hammer ever know it was a hammer if it never hammered nails? Probably not, right? It's never going to discover its identity until it realizes its purpose. So in obeying him and in following the purpose that he's called us to, that's where we truly realize the fullness of who he's made us to be. If you're on a battlefield, remember I asked you this question, Malcolm? If you're on a battlefield, what two things are on your mind? What don't you want to happen? You don't want to die. Jared, you're a Marine. Yes. What do you want to happen? Kill the other guy. Kill the other guy. So you don't want to die and you want to win, right? Okay, here's the deal. If you survive, do you always win? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. If you win, do you survive? Yes. Yeah. Guys, we put our expectations way too low as Christian men. We say, my goal is to make it to church three out of four Sundays and to quit looking at porn. If I could ever get there, that's pretty good. I think men in America think along these lines. We put our expectations so low, and you get what you expect. This is a law of life. I think if we do that, it's very doubtful that we'll win the war. Guys, but if our expectation is, I'm going to win the fight that God put me in. I'm going to win my city for Christ. I'm going to be the man of God in my family that he's called me to be. I'm going to be the man of God in my church. I'm going to be pastors who love to have men serve. As soon as I start to fight the fight that he's put me in, surviving is inevitable. It happens on the side. That's when I fulfill my purpose, guys. And that's when I truly realize the identity that he's given me. Okay, we're going to break up. We're going to do some testimony worksheets, get in your groups. And uh, what these testimony worksheets are, is they're an opportunity for you guys to put on paper what God's done in your life. And there will be some instructions how you could word this in such a way that it could be relatable to somebody and it could help somebody truly hear the gospel through what God's done in your life. It's really powerful. And pastors, uh, help your men do this. Help your men put this together because this will be an evangelistic tool that you guys can use for the rest of your life. If you are interested in seeing what we would call a three-minute testimony, I think it's Acts 22. Yeah, it's in Acts 22. If you read Acts 22, Paul's on trial... And they say, okay, defend yourself. <laughs> Paul goes into his testimony. It's so cool. And he has it. And if you read that, it'll take about three minutes to read. It's about exactly what you'll come up with tonight. But see, he had this prepared and ready. And as soon as the opportunity was available, boom, he was sharing it with everybody he could. So, guys, thank you. And uh, get the coffee and break up and uh, go for it.